everybody. I'm so glad that you're here today. I hope you're doing well. We're talking about Black Eyed Peas' famous song, I Got a Feeling. I got a feeling that tonight's going to be a good night. I wish I could sing. I can't sing. Terrible singer. But if I could, I'd sing it right now for you. I got a feeling the anticipation's high. Tonight's going to be a good night. There's a line that says, tonight's the night. Let's live it up. I got my money. Let's spend it up. Have you ever been excited? Have you ever just been flying high with excitement, anticipating something? Because when you get to the Book of Ruth, real students of the Book of Ruth, that's where they are. They are sky high with anticipation and expectation things are going to be great. I remember I was on vacation I don't know, maybe five, six years ago, and I was with my family. I was with my friends. We spent all day in the water. A friend of mine let me use his wave runner. We were tired. We were having fun. We go to dinner that night, family and friends, highly reviewed restaurant. I am so hungry. I'm so excited. The food comes before me. And man, after we pray, boy, I dig in. I take one big bite and rocks. There was actual gravel in my food. There was rocks in my food. Like, oh, I almost broke my tooth. And I called over the person that was, you know, waiting on our table. I said, hey, hey, there's gravel in my food. And you know what he said? Yeah, that happens all the time. It's the company we get it from. And then he turned and walked away. Dog about a letdown. That is Ruth. Anticipation flying high and then big bite into gravel. Why? What is going on here? Let me read to you the opening lines of Ruth chapter one. This is what it says. In the days of judges, when the judges ruled, there's a famine in the land. So a man, anonymous man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his anonymous wife and his anonymous two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab, right? The book of Judges is all about anonymity. But something changes in verse number two. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Malon. And you know what Malon means? It means sickness. And Malon marries Ruth. We'll come to that in a little bit. And Kilion, you know what Kilion means? It means destruction. Now, I don't know anybody. I don't care how bad your labor pains were. Would actually name your children sickness and destruction. We're going to come back to that later in this series because there's an important reason why. Now, destruction marries Orpah. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and they lived there. Now, um, there are scholars, Jewish scholars, and they write in something called the Midrash, written hundreds and actually almost 2,000 years ago. Uh, they're closer to the action. What I mean is they're closer to when these events take place. They understand the language and they understand the culture so much better. And their insights are very, very helpful. And what they say is that Elimelech was very wealthy and a very respected man in Bethlehem. Now, that would make sense because in the Bible, uh, Bethlehem and those who are of the tribe of Judah, which Elimelech was, that represents leadership and royalty. So here's why it's such a shocker, everybody, is that this guy who was a leader and he's wealthy, that when famine hits, he leaves. He doesn't help his brothers. He doesn't care for his brothers. He leaves his brothers. Instead of providing leadership, he leaves. Now, that's what was happening in the book of Judges. This is why the two were tied together. There was no leadership in the book of Judges. You expected somebody to lead, and they fail you. And here you have a leader, a wealthy leader. Will you care for your brothers? Absolutely not. And he leaves. And it said this, 
that the reason he leaves is he doesn't want his brothers knocking on his door saying, hey, could you please help me out? I'm not my brother's keeper is what Elimelech says. And so he goes to Moab. That's why it's such a big letdown. You're excited. All of a sudden, this guy's going to help out. And here is a major letdown before us. Okay, verse number three. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Tragedy number one. Well, maybe that's not tragedy number one. Maybe it's tragedy number two. Maybe number one is when he left. Number two, he dies. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other Ruth. After they lived there for 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. More tragedies. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. We just keep getting farther and farther and farther away from hope. When you enter into Ruth, you have an expectation that things are going to turn around and then straight down, you bit into a big rock. Now, key to understanding the Bible, a key to understanding uh, Ruth is that there's repeating patterns. Like there's language that is used. There's certain words that are used constantly. And it's like, oh, okay, this word was used here and it was used here. So these two stories are meant to kind of tie together, right? There's things like that. So you read in the beginning that Elimelech leaves the land and he goes to Moab. Who left the land twice because of famine? Abraham did. What happened? Bad both times. So what's getting ready to happen? Bad's getting ready to happen. All these things tied together. The stories of Lot and his daughters and Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar, very important. Today, I want to point to a repeating pattern. The Bible repeats patterns so that we understand how to better interpret it, so that we can rightly interpret it. These patterns are like big signs saying, watch out for this. This is how you can get clarity or understanding what you are reading. And we get that here. Got a buddy of mine. His name is Jacob. And he went to pick up his wife late one night at midnight at BWI Airport. It's late. He's tired. He's picking her up. He pulls his heart. Anybody there at BWI Airport? But you know, when you go to pick up somebody at the airport, that the police officers that were are they're there, they won't let you like sit in front of the airport anymore. They kind of keep you moving. It's like, what, what am I supposed to do, man? Do you want the person I'm picking up just like fling the door open and they throw their they throw their luggage in and they just run and dive into the car? Anyway, so Jacob's there to pick up his wife. And uh, he's at BWI Airport, and he just pulls up, and the wheels just come to a stop, and a police officer hits the lights and the siren right behind him. He's like, what? And then immediately, immediately, the police officer hits it again. Well, Jacob is so frustrated. He's like, oh, my gosh. What is wrong? So he's, he says, I love the police. He said, but he was late. He was frustrated. He jumps out of the car, and he goes back. He's like, what? What do you want me to do? And it says, sir... See that big sign up there? You are in the bus lane. And he's like, oh my gosh, I totally missed the sign. Okay, you can't miss this sign. If you miss this sign, you're going you're gonna to cause yourself a lot of frustration, okay? Here is the big sign. Here is the repeating pattern, all right? Let's go all the way back to Adam and Eve, because that's where the signs begin. And there's four really big signs that stand out here. Adam and Eve have how many sons? They have two sons. Well, they start with two sons. There's Cain and Abel, right? And then tragedy strikes. What happens? Cain kills Abel. God says, where is your brother, Cain? And Cain says, very important. I am not my brother's keeper. I am not my brother's keeper. Okay? Now, how many total sons did Adam and Eve have? They had three. They had Cain, Abel, and Seth. And so Cain says, I'm not my brother's keeper. And you see two parents 
jump into action. And it says in Genesis chapter four, to keep the name of Abel alive, they jump in and have another child and his name is Seth. And the word Seth, which we're gonna come back to at the end of this means to establish, okay? So that's where the pattern starts. So here's the important thing. 10 generations later, the pattern repeats. This time it's with Noah. How many sons did Noah have? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Tragedy strikes. Ham doesn't die, but something really bad happens in the presence of his father. And two people jump into action. Shem and Japheth. And they grab a cloth and they walk backwards and they cover their father's nakedness. The point here is, is you got two brothers jumping in. So in the first pattern, you have two parents that come to the aid of a son. And in the second pattern, similar, slightly different, you have two kids that come to the aid of a parent. The pattern is repeating itself. What does Noah do? He curses. Who does he curse? Ham? No, he doesn't curse Ham. He curses Ham's son. What does it mean to curse your son? You're cursing somebody's legacy. You're cursing somebody's future, somebody's seed, somebody's, somebody's name. They're, they're continuing on. You're cursing everything that will come after them. He doesn't curse him. He curses his seed, his name, his legacy. Okay. There's pattern number two. Now, guess what? Ten generations later, and again, for the, for the second time, we get to Terra. Who is Tara? Tara is this. I want to read, I want to read this to you. It's the very ending of Genesis chapter 11. And this is what it says. Tara became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Tara was still alive, Haran died in Ur. So he, he, he died young. He died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abraham and Nahor both married. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Ishkah. Now Sarah was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abraham and grandson Lot of Haran and his daughter-in-law Sarah, the wife of his son Abraham, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans, to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Now, last verse. Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. So you got Terah, he's got three sons. He's got Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Tragedy strikes, pattern repeats. Haran dies, he dies young. And now for the first time in all of history, two brothers jump in to help a brother out. So what Cain said in the very beginning of the Bible, I'm not my brother's keeper. Now for the first time, you had parents helping child, you had child helping parents, but now for the first time in history, you have a brother helping a brother forever. And from this point on, everything changes. It is a Jewish concept called yibum. That means that you rescue your brother, that you act selflessly on behalf of your brother to rescue your brother so that his name and his legacy would live on.
So the first time in all of history, finally, we have brother helping brother. It is the first act of Hesed that is in the Bible. What is going on here? The genealogy will show this. It's that Nahor marries his niece. I know that sounds weird, but stick with me with the pattern. There are reasons for all of this stuff, okay? I just want you to focus on the pattern, okay? Because the pattern is really clear. He marries his niece, which is Haran's daughter, okay? So Haran has two daughters and a son. The son's name is Lot. He marries his niece. Now, Abraham marries too. Who does he marry? Many scholars believe, and you can Google this for yourself, and if you don't get enough information, you can find out, uh, you can email me and find out, okay? But he marries Ishka. Ishka is Sarah. So what you have here is two brothers, Abraham and Nahor, coming to the rescue so that their brother lives on. It's never happened in the history of the world. There's a direct connection to the Tower of Babel, which is in the exact same chapter. Tower of Babel only takes up nine verses. It is extremely important. What is the Tower of Babel about? Okay, This is a part of the repeating pattern. In the Tower of Babel, they found a new technology, man-made bricks. They make these bricks, and it says they settle down, they come up with this new technology, and they make these bricks, and they're building this big tower. What's wrong with building a big, big tower? Okay, how do we know that... The Bible is trying to help us to see these two are connected together. There's only two places the Hebrew word for settle down is used. It's used in the Tower of Babel, and it's used here where Terah settles down. So like he's on the journey. Terah starts the journey to the land of Israel. He stops halfway there, and he settles. And they settle with the Tower of Babel. The writer, using the exact same words, is trying to get us to make the connection so we can better understand and correctly interpret what is going on. Now, One brother stays. That's Nahor. He stays behind. And another brother, that's Abraham, continues the journey to go to the land of Israel. Remember that. Really, really important. And the one brother, Abraham, who continues on is hopeless and he's childless because he's very advanced in age, right? When we catch up to their ages, they're 75 and Sarah is 65 years old. At that point, it would be really natural for Abraham to start thinking, I've got to forget about my dead brother, Haran, and i got to think about me. Like, when am I going to start thinking about me? When am I going to have a child for me? When am I going to stop taking care and keeping my brother and keeping his legacy and his name alive? i got to do what is best for me. But he doesn't do it. And here's where God speaks in Genesis chapter 12. Famous verses in the Bible. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. What does that mean? Kings are going to come from you. Kings. There's going to be a nation. There's going to be kings. And I'm going to bless you. And what what am I going to do? I'm going to make your name great, and you're going to be a blessing. Babel, we are going to make our name great. We're going to make our name great. And here God speaks and says, I am going to make your name great. The exact opposite. That, that allowing God to make our name great and allowing ourselves to 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 value what God values and to live out his character, here is where Hesed comes into play. Now, Abraham continues in journey into the promised land, trying to keep his dead brother's name alive. And what does he do? What does he do? He goes around Israel building little towers, these little miniature towers. We call them altars. Just like the big tower of Babel, he goes around building little towers. But the text is really clear. And this is, again, the connections. This is what the writer of the Bible is doing. This is what God is showing us, okay? 
He uses God-made stones as opposed to man-made bricks. This is God's way of doing things. This is man's way of doing things. God is into hesed. Man is into other things. We need the instruction of God. He is using God-made stones. Now, look at this, the parallels between the two stories of Noah and Abraham. Tragedy strikes a brother. It happens in the presence of the father. Two sons act. And then we read in the story of Noah that the two sons took, they took this cloth. And in the story of Terah, Abraham and Nahor take wives, the exact same language in ancient Hebrew, connecting the two together. And both stories end with the death of the father. Now, this is all about the name. This is about what am I going to do for your name? How am I like Adam and Eve? Keep the name. Keep the name of Abel alive for the sake of Abel. So we have Seth. Look at what is happening in the Hebrew text. Check it out on your screen. Four times in the story of Noah. The first time you get it, Shen Mem, the name. Shen Mem are together. The second time it is used, it's exactly together. The third time, it's a little bit separated. And by the fourth time, it's more separated. What is happening? Lives are being separated. They're being pulled apart because nobody is choosing Hesed, because brother is not taking care of brother. Now look at what happens with the story of Terah. Look what Abraham and Nahor do. When the first time it is used, it mirrors the last time it is used in the story of Noah. It's far apart. And then the next time it's closer together. And then this, and then the third and the fourth time it's right together. What's happening? Because of Hesed, God is stitching back by the power of Hesed. He's stitching back together the name. He's stitching back together our lives. How do you stitch back together your life? How do you stitch back together your family or your friends or your church or your country? How do you stitch anything back together? You stitch it back together through Hesed because that is the only thing that will work. This is what the Bible says. This is what history says. Hesed is the only thing that will stitch back together our lives over again. Why is Abraham famous, everybody? We would say Abraham is famous because he founded Abrahamic monotheism. That's not what the Bible says, but that's what we would say. God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you a great name. More than 4 billion people today, Jews, Christians, and Muslims, call Abraham the father of their faith. Brothers, Jews, Christians, and Muslims are brothers in Abrahamic monotheism. But in the Bible, Abraham's not famous for Abrahamic monotheism. He's famous for Hesed. He is famous for doing the first act of Hesed that we have in all the world. And this is what begins to change the whole world. He's the first person to actually live out the very mission of God, what the Bible is all about in the world. I will keep my brother. I will rescue my brother. I will cling to Hesed. Okay. So you got Adam and you got 10 generations to Noah. Then you got Noah and you got 10 generations to Terah. And you have this pattern repeating and repeating. How many generations to Ruth? You guessed it, 10. And that is why anticipation is running high. In the opening verses of Ruth, tragedy strikes. Strikes three times, three dead men. And now we're left with three women and they're on their way back to Bethlehem. They've been in Moab and now they're going back to Israel. They're headed towards Bethlehem. And what happens along the way, halfway there, Naomi, the mother-in-law says to her two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, 
go back, go back, go back. And then, of all things, what happens? One of them heads back. Just like with Nahor. Nahor, Terra's son, heads back. It's the exact same thing. He stays. He goes back to the land. Who continues on the quest? Abraham. Total hopelessness. He's going, he's at advanced age. Sarah's at advanced age. They can't have a kid. He wants a kid. And he hope he just continues to follow God, hoping that some way it will work out. And what does Ruth do? She continues to follow. She's clinging. She's headed towards a land where no man is going to marry her because it's forbidden to marry a Moabite. She is childless. But she's clinging to Hesed with everything she's got. Everybody, who is Ruth? Who is she? I want to read you something. Remember what we read a moment ago from Genesis chapter 12? The calling of Abraham. Leave your, your land. Leave your family. Leave your country. Go to a new land where you're from. Here's what Boaz says in Ruth chapter 2 about Ruth. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you, here it comes, left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Everybody, who is Ruth? She is Abraham. She is the female Abraham. Abraham is famous for Hesed, and Ruth is famous for Hesed. And now what you have here before, it was it was like constantly three men. And now it's three women who are going to do a great act of Hesed and stitch this family back together. Now, you remember how Shem and Japheth walked backwards with this cloth to cover their father? Well, what you find here, and we talked about the threshing floor a little bit in last week's message, but it's found in Ruth chapter 3. We are told that when Ruth goes to that threshing floor, and all of a sudden you expected something to happen. You expected sex to happen, but sex doesn't happen. Hesed happens, which is far better than sex, believe it or not. Hesed happens. And what does Boaz do? He takes a cloth and he fills it with seed. And he says, walk this back to your mother-in-law. What does Shem and Japheth do? They walk backwards to their father. Oh my gosh, the connection, the pattern is just so obvious for us. And Boaz says, the same words used in ancient Hebrew, walk this back to your mother-in-law. What did Noah do to Ham who had seen him, who had seen his nakedness? He curses his legacy. He curses his seed, Canaan. And what does Boaz do? He fills the cloth with an abundance of seed, with an abundance of life. It's reversing. The pattern is the same, but the end product is completely different. Now there's hope. Now there's life. Everything is changing. Now check this out. Do you remember when Adam and Eve said, we are going to resurrect the legacy. We're going to keep our son Abel alive. We don't want his spirit to die. For his sake, we're going to have another son. And they name him Seth. Now check this out, everybody. Do you know what Boaz does? He takes this cloth filled with seed of new life. And it says he sets it. He establishes it on Ruth's back. All kinds of other words could be used. But in ancient Hebrew, the writer of the Bible, God tells us he is stuck so that we don't miss it. The pattern is completing here. Ruth is Abraham. It is absolutely fascinating. So what is Hesed doing through the life of Ruth? 
as she begins to infect all kinds of people. It is stitching back together the lives of this family. Everybody, we think about this. When you are in a mess, when tragedy strikes you and it strikes me, I notice the first thing I want to do is I want to get mad. I want to get angry. I want to lash out. If I'm upset with people, I want to get upset. If I'm mad about people doing certain things in the world, I want to curse them. I want to send them to hell. Those people are the problem. I want to yell and scream. I just got to get out of this mess that I am. I find that the first thing, the low-hanging fruit that I reach for is I just act in non-Hesed ways. Hesed's not going to change anything. What's going to change it is me putting people on a highway to hell. Me just lashing out at other people, getting mad at people and all of those things. But what actually turns things around is Hesed. Hesed is the one thing. Hesed was where it starts. Is your life in trouble? Hesed is where you begin to put your life back together. Is your family in trouble? Hesed is where you start. Is your church in trouble? Is your community in trouble? Is your country in trouble? Where do I start when my back is against the wall and tragedy is struck? Hesed is where you start. That's where it all begins. I was noticing, I was listening recently to two very famous American Bible scholars. And they were talking about how bad of a shape our world is in. Okay, my head's not stuck in the sand. I know that the world's not perfect. I know it. But here's what they were saying the answer is. Fear. I can't believe it. Both of them were saying, they're going to come for your kids. They're going to come for your houses. They're going to take your life. That the only thing to do is fear, fear, fear. I understand there's a lot to fear about. I understand the world is a terrible place, but God's solution to the problem is Hesed. Cling to Hesed. Cling to loving kindness. That's where you start. And if you're preaching anything other than that, you're not preaching God's word. Because God says, you view everything through this book of Hesed. It's the character of God. It's the character of Ruth. And it stitches everything else together. Now, I want to show you one more very important family tree. And what you're going to see right there on the screen is this. Starting with Terah, right? He's the father. He's really the one that starts the journey. And then Abraham picks it up. He's really the one that begins the train moving towards Abrahamic monotheism. But he's the father. And you see that on one side, we have Abraham and he marries Sarah. And who are the fathers that come from that family tree? They're Isaac and they're Jacob. Nahor marries, as Abraham does, the daughter of their dead brother, Haran, Milcah. And where do the mothers come from from the family tree? Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. They come through the line of Nahor and Milcah. Now, where does Boaz come from? He comes from the union between those two lines of Abraham, Sarah, Nahor, and Milcah. Where does Ruth come from? She comes from the line of Haran over here, who had Lot who had an incestuous relationship where the family fell completely apart with his daughter and produced the Moabites, and that's what Ruth is. And now Ruth, living out Hesed, now marries Boaz, and their son is Obed, and Obed's son is Jesse, and Jesse's son is King David. Do you see what's happening there? The power of Hesed has stitched this family completely back together. It is now complete. The pattern is complete in the book of Ruth. That's why Ruth is so important. That's why we, we, we read it when we celebrate the giving of the law on Mount Sinai when God's glory falls down. God is repeating a pattern. And how is that pattern going to repeat in your life and in my life? Through Hesed. When we cling to Hesed. Hesed is what the Bible is all about. 
That's where we begin to put the pieces of the puzzle back together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us all to experience the power of Hesed in our life. And when we are tempted to reach for anti-Hesed, help us to reach for the true Hesed. In Christ's name, amen.